175 New York. We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. I'm now. dying. That's a war. That's what it is. Wow. Those sounds still give me chills. Every time I hear it. Every 12 months, September 11th. Yeah. I'll never forget 2,977 American lives. Yet still unbelievable, isn't it? It sure is. Can't believe it was so long ago. Feels like yesterday when you hear that, huh? Yeah. What do you think? I think we should put terrorism on the couch. Marie Rose Abad. Andrew Anthony Abate. Vincent Paul Abate. Mark Francis Broderick. Herman Charles Brockhammer. Keith A. Broomfield. Bernard C. Brown II. Whew. Heavy episode today, Nelson. Absolutely. Absolutely. And look, I'm not usually one to be touchy-feely or cheerleading for my country or Mr. Patriotic. Anyone who knows me knows that, but man, it's hard to, to relive that. Well, it is hard, but it is sort of the, it is sort of the purpose. It's also the effect. It's the impact. It's what we're talking about. So, uh, when you start, man, where were you on 9-11? Do you remember what you were doing, where you were, what you thought? Man. Yeah. I, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, literally like it was yesterday. I was, in the office at Cape Fear Community College, um, my second year of employment there. And I saw my department chair standing with her hands just above her belly button, rocking back and forth on her heels, saying something to the effect that, oh my, oh my, we've been attacked. I said, what? And she and the department administrative assistant were talking about something that they had heard had happened in New York City. And as I stood there, I learned that apparently a plane had crashed into one of the World Trade Centers. And no one knew what kind of plane. No one understood the circumstances. Little did I know at the time there was already speculation of terrorism. In fact, by the time I got to my first class, which was maybe 20 or 30 minutes later, there were students crying in the classroom. The television in my classroom was, was on. Big box-style television in a cradle in the corner of the room. A room, by the way, I might add, that I still teach in to this day. And I can see where the screws held the mount <laughs> in, the, in the wall. And it's drywalled over or patched over with plaster, but I can still see. And every time I walk in that room, 416, by the way, S416. Wow, okay. I see the faces. I see the faces of the students who were sitting there that day. Were they scared? They were scared. They were uncertain. Were you scared? I was terrified. And uh, they were all just kind of looking for an explanation. And I knew that they were going to look to me. And a couple of them said, we've been attacked. And I just encouraged them to, to wait until we knew more. And you were kind of a kid yourself then. You were 20, 29 years old. 26 years old, if you can believe that. 26? 26 years old. From the second year teaching full-time in psychology. Yeah. 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 It, was, it was tough. Yeah. No one had cell phones, by the way. And people were... Really upset about friends and relatives who lived in New York City that they were worried about. 
they had heard that, man, the World Trade Center had, had been hit. Um, now, I don't remember exactly when the towers, uh, the first one fell. I want to say it was about 40 minutes to an hour after it was hit. I had a couple classes that day, and, you know, by the time I had made it to my third class, both towers um, were down. Were you- and uh, we were, by that point, I was letting people go home. And I guess it was maybe two or three days later, students were already ready to go and attack anyone and everyone. Yeah, I remember they were, that. They were happy to go to Iraq or Afghanistan, They just any any place on the earth that had despots, they were ready to go and bomb. Yeah. And so I guess um, in that way, the people who you know funded, planned the attacks on 9-11 had done the job because terrorism was definitely afoot. Yes. Like a virus, it was, it was spreading, right? It was front of mind. It kind of remains front of mind for us, doesn't it? I mean... Just think of all the changes from September 11th. Airport security. Absolutely. Just being the most visible. But just the way we live, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we feel about each other. And maybe it's different for me because 9-11 has really played an outsized role in my story, in my life. How so? Well, I was in school too. Mm -hmm. I was... As a student. I was a senior in high school. Yeah, I was you know, probably like a lot of your students. Um, We were very close to New York. Oh, wow. I lived like less than 100 miles from New York. Um, so, you know, while we're going through all this, you know, we're leaving class, regular day, a Tuesday in September, and the TV turns on, as TV sometimes did when there was big news. But we're transitioning to another class. And we, you know, very small school, 50 students in my graduating high school. I'm coming out, and you see the image of the World Trade Center on fire, but it looked kind of like a commuter plane. And honestly, I didn't think like that much of it, except, well, that's a crazy story. I went down and we had a two-hour study hall below and I came up after that. There were no TVs. There was no, you know, nobody was texting in class. No, no one had phones. No, and I come up and the world had changed. Hmm. And it was so surreal. And I remember that because it was, you know, that I lived half of my life one way with one thought process. And for me, everything changed after that. You know, I remember sitting there growing up so quickly and just feeling different. I was watching in study hall with students. I had a two-hour study block after that. I was watching with students and teachers in a tiny, like, five-inch TV. Remember those TVs you had in your kitchen? Yeah. There was one in the library office, and we're all sitting there watching Crowded around that little screen. Crowded around, and there was no teachers, and there was no students. We were just human beings. Yeah, Americans. Americans, and... We saw the second uh, tower fall. I kind of thought it was a replay of the first as it's happening in real time. Somebody said, one of our teachers, our librarian said, well, what do we do? What do we do now? And it was just dead silent. And somebody responded, we should pray. Oh, wow. Yeah, in school. And uh, that's what we ended up doing. We, we had a prayer. Um, yeah, that's definitely better than my students. They were all, we should bomb. And I'm like, do you guys want to find out who did it first? Like, I'm with you. I feel that visceral gut sort of reaction. I too want to exact revenge, but I think it's important for us to try and use reason. And it's not easy, is it? No. And it's it's less easy when you're 18 because I gave in to some of that. And three weeks later, uh, I joined the U.S. Army. Is that right? Yeah, three weeks after, I joined the delayed entry program. Um, and I went and when I graduated high school, I was you know less than a year after 9-11. I spent my first anniversary, uh, we had a big ceremony and, you know, they, they played the, the sounds that, you know, some of which we just heard and uh, it sort of, you know, reinforced and every 9-11 when mm-hmm. I was in the service, it reinforced 
what I was doing there. Like I said, I, I never imagined a life like the one I ended up living, and I don't think I would have lived it had it not been for that that seminal moment. You know, my, I was going to ask you that. I think you mentioned that in one of our last episodes, right? You didn't plan on going into the service. I mean, no, by no, your own God, admission, no. you weren't the best of students and didn't. Well, I damn sure wasn't one of the nec- best of soldiers. You didn't necessarily have the, the clearest path of your future, but so 9-11, it changed you and it gave you um, clarity, it, didn't it? I don't know if it gave me clarity. Or, or direction. It, it made me feel like I had to do something. It made me feel like I had to serve. Call of, called arms. You know, my dad was on the first plane coming back from overseas. My dad was in Germany on the day of the attacks. Couldn't get in touch with him, and everybody's scared, and he was scared. And We ended up, uh, he ended up calling me the day he flew back from Germany to, and you know, a lot of these terrorists, the hijackers had connections to airline schools, plane schools, sure. pilot schools in Germany and everything. So, you know. And next door in Belgium, as I understand exactly. it. Exactly. Well, so, in Brussels. So he comes back, and I get a message on my cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone. Mm-hmm. I get a message on the cell phone that says, look, you know, I'm flying back today. If something happens, don't be angry. This was something that I had to do. Uh, he'd been on probably over 200 international flights in his life at that point. Mm-hmm. This is something he did. He said it was the first time he'd ever been afraid to fly. He said when they landed in Newark International Airport. Which, it, by the way, is where at least some of the hijackers boarded the planes, right? Yeah. Newark. Yeah. I when, think it was Newark. When he, yes, it was. When he landed in Newark, he just started, uh, you know, he started crying. Mm. Um, just catharsis, I guess. Catharsis, yeah. Maybe he, a little survivor's guilt. Sure, maybe, maybe. You know. Um, but yeah, joining the military, I mean, I, I lost friends uh, in Afghanistan. I was in Afghanistan. My life went down a completely different path, in part because of one act of violence mm. and brutality so on 9-11, I don't just think about the lives that were lost, although tower, I do. Yeah. I think about the lives that were changed, and, and mine is certainly one of those. Um, I lived a life where I was secure in who I was and in, mm-hmm. in my safety and in my security, and that was really something that was taken away. Yeah, we took uh, that for granted, didn't we? We sure did. And, I mean, you know, that is a privileged position to be in. I mean, there are many parts of the world... Before 9-11, and certainly many parts since, that this is just an everyday sort of feeling that they have. You know, every time someone boards a bus, gets on a subway, gets in a taxi, uh, I think about people who live in um, Israel, people who live in sure. Palestine. They live with I it mean, every day. You, you, you worry, you're concerned, you're, you're vigilant about this every day. Well, and that's how it felt that first week after, didn't it? It was yeah. everywhere. The You didn't know when or if you were ever right. going to be safe again. I remember uh, the day after, maybe it was Thursday, the Empire State Building was evacuated. Sure. And you're just sitting on TV and you're like, is it going to blow up? Mm-hmm. Am I going to watch it blow up? Because sure. I feel like it's about to blow up. Yeah. And, you know, it, and, and it wouldn't have surprised you at that point. No, but I mean, and that's sort of the point of today's discussion. Look, terrorism... It, throughout history has really been something that exacts an emotional toll. And it's larger than the act itself, isn't it? Much. Absolutely. It's a violent political statement um, that is designed to create amongst the populace a reaction or a policy change or something. Political statement. That's interesting. 
hey, let's let's explore that notion on the other side. All right. Janice J. Louise Brown. Lloyd Stanford Brown. Adam P. Arias. Michael J. Armstrong. Nelson, talk about 9-11 being a political statement. I think uh, a lot of our listeners may have never even thought about it from that perspective. Well, it absolutely was. I mean, look, when Osama bin Laden took credit for it, which took some time, you know, he said his intention was to bring about the economic collapse of the United States to create such a body blow mm. that, you know, the idea... It, by the way, we should say, wh what was the purpose, right? What was Osama bin Laden trying to do besides bring the... Why was he so interested in the economic stability and the economic power and the military power of the United States? Well, first of all, I mean, I think you can back up, can't you? Um, why was he so interested in killing Americans? Why was so, he so interested in killing so many Americans? Well, I'll, I'll tell you I don't from, know that from his perspective. He wanted us to stop messing with their governments. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the, the fact that he did it the way he did it uh, with our own airplanes, the fact that he did it in arguably one of the most financially secure and um, physically secure physically secure locations on the in the United States, if not the world, the fact that he did it to two of our largest at the time institutions. Well, symbols matter. Yeah, right. So I mean, I mean these things you, were when you think about up in the in, up in the clouds with God. These these World Trade Centers, right? And, and when and, you think about the World Trade Centers, and you think about that area of New York in particular, you're thinking about the economic might that yeah, is the, the United hub, States. Yeah, that's our backbone. And then when you're thinking about the military might of the United you States, think the you're thinking about the Pentagon. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, and where that, was that fourth plane going, right? It was going yeah, straight into the, the political House. heart it was going into of the DC, beast. Wasn't it? it was going right into the White House. That yeah. was the, that was the, the intent. intent. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you think about those targets and, and the reasoning behind them, um, and, and then you think about the vulnerability that not an accident. In other no, words. yeah, no. It wasn't an accident. Just it's not like just a couple of uh, no, of course not rogue actors get on a plane because they got some beef with America for whatever reason and say, you know what, I'm going to take some planes into some some high rises. I mean, there's plenty of high rises around America. In fact, those planes were those planes were loaded for bear with fuel. They were going cross continent. Yeah, they could have gone a lot further than Newark or Dulles or JFK or wherever they came from. Just right into Pennsylvania or right into, you know, Northern Virginia. They, they could have made it all the way to California. Could have hit any place. Yeah. A lot of, lot of busy places. I think about Disney World. I think about a lot of, lot of busy places that could have hit. Yeah. But in terms of striking fear, in terms of terrorizing, talk about that if you would. Why, why pick Well, you know, you know in, the in the 1800s, terrorism was really focused on individual assassinations of political leaders, hmm. right? This was the way to inspire fear among the populace. Um, you know, throughout history, the idea of um, outlandish, uh, violent acts in the pursuit of a political agenda, it's, it's certainly not new, right? right? And in terms of the emotional response that it genders or engenders, it's pretty effective, but the problem is that usually that emotional response is so powerful mm -hmm. that the point and the purpose of the terrorist act is A, forgotten, and then B, any policy change is usually in the other direction. So it, it, 
it has a near universal failure rate in terms of producing the results that it wants. That's a good but point. if the it, that's in terms of political policy, if the mm. point is to terrorize, then I think we have to say to that end it's effective, but it is not effective as a means for policy change. You know, I was doing some yard work about a week ago, my wife and I, and I don't mean to cheapen what we're talking about with this example, but it just kind of come to me as my arm started itching. Must have gotten into some poison oak or something. About a day and a half after the yard work, I noticed a couple bumps on my forearm and they started itching. thought maybe they were mosquito bites. I refrained as much as I could. And then my wife said that she had some bumps that were itching. Uh, they were on her forearm. I was like, man, I wonder if we got into the same thing. Hey, we're doing yard work. So we both refrained from scratching as much as we could. Um, but each day we're reminded of those things. Um, if not itching, scratching, they were getting redder and they were raised on our forearms. And I, I think about the fact that the plant that, that did this to me used, I did more damage to my arm and I caused more pain and suffering over the past week from scratching it. If I could have ignored it, if I could have forgotten about it, this stuff would have already been cleared up. But it took advantage. It takes advantage of the fact that I'm going to look at it. I'm going to be reminded of it. My wife and I are going to talk about it. We're going to scratch, and it's going to spread, and it's going to be worse. And well, I feel like with, with terrorism, isn't that kind of the point? Like, it doesn't really matter how many people were killed necessarily. It doesn't matter how big that building was necessarily. Terrorists could strike even larger buildings. So, wait, I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Are you suggesting that our national response to terrorism in general, but let's say to 9-11 mm -hmm. in particular, was, was outsized and did more damage in some ways or contributed mm. to a larger infection. No, although I think there are probably people that would make that case. I guess mine was a little more innocent than that. What I was saying is the pain we felt, the fear that was spread, the wildfire of this event, the fact that we're still thinking about it 20-some-odd years later and talking about it and um, the fact that I still think about it every time I get on a plane has more to do with me and my brain than it. and my brain's vulnerabilities and right. So then, I want to. In other words, that. there's that the psychology of it. I guess the existential anxiety, the human tendency to want to scratch an, an itch and for that to end up doing more harm. So I want to I want to explore that, but should we should we talk about our response first, or should, let's go ahead and talk about mm. the not not our our national response. Let's talk about our individual response first, because I think it will contextualize what ended up being a, a pretty serious national response. Let's do that, uh, but um, let's take a break first. Yeah. Jack, Charles, Aaron. Joshua, Todd, Aaron. Richard. Avery Arano. Kenneth Bruce Kumpel. For those of you listeners that have been with us for uh, the entire show, I'd like to um, 
make sure that I'm very clear about what I was uh, trying to otherwise communicate. I likened America's response, I don't mean militarily, but I mean America's emotional response, the fact that the fear and the terror had been etched into our zeitgeist, um, that the world had indeed changed for Americans, that our innocence, so to speak, our privilege of not having to worry about suicide bombers and whatnot, you know, it was stripped from us on that day. And it wasn't that so many people were killed. It wasn't that it was a terrorist attack from another country per se. It was just the right combination of things that those who plotted this understood and took advantage of. They, they understood the kind of emotional and psychological um, effect this event would have on us. Again, I don't think it was an accident that they right. selected New York City. I don't think it was an accident that they selected no, no, the that towers. Was an accident. It wasn't an accident that they used our own planes against us. It wasn't an accident, right? Um, so what, well, let's let's talk about that. And in many ways, that that made us more afraid, maybe then. So talk talk to me if you could talk to our audience about the psychological impact of. of Terrorism. I mentioned mm-hmm. that it traditionally does engender a a response, a serious response. And you know, we're focused on 9/11, but look at the shooting attacks mm-hmm. in Paris yes. in you know 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, Subway attacks and sure, England 11, sure. 11 or something like or, that. Yeah. Or you know, mm-hmm. and even though we're focused on terrorism in particular because it's political, any mass shooting, right? Mm-hmm. Think of Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. Think of some of the big attacks yeah. in the United States. What what's going on? And how how do people process death? Yeah, yeah. and not just death but, in this way. Yeah, it, uh, what this, is it about? Type of what violence. is it about these kinds how do we of events? It? Uh, well, I don't I don't think I need to necessarily even refer to terrorism itself in 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 my explanation. I just think about first and foremost the human tendency to want control. Um, Whether real or imagined, we want to have control. We want to have control over anything and everything. That's why I don't fly well to begin with. But we we should know that even when we think we have control, it's an illusion. Sure. Like, yeah, I'm behind the wheel of my car, but I don't know if there's brake fluid in my car. I don't know if you know, my car is going to break down or not. I don't know if my steering wheel is going to lock up. I don't know if, you know, but I feel in control when I'm driving, which in turn makes me feel safer. When I'm about to board a plane, even though I know intellectually, rationally, that way less likely that I'm going to die in a plane accident, I can't help but be afraid, deathly afraid. Yes. When there's turbulence. Yes. I get even more afraid, even though I know that's normal. Preach, brother. Yet, when I'm in my car and I have to swerve or slam on brakes, that has physically, objectively, way more of an impact on my body. Yes. That should be a sign that, man, I'm you, just, maybe I'm you need, to pull, over. You need sure. to pull over. You're vulnerable. You're not as safe as you thought you were driving this car. You're not that good, but it doesn't. I just, so, I, kind of, I kind of excuse it and go, well, you know, I was in control. No, I really wasn't. And I mean, existentially, if you think about it, we're really not in control of the thing that matters most, our own life. When, we, when we are alive and when we're dead, we're not in control of that at all. But we feel maybe as if some of the things we do are making us more likely to be alive and some of the things we do 
or making us more likely to be dead. So terrorism or mass violence really attacks your sense of your, control. It makes you feel vulnerable, vulnerable mm-hmm. where at once or before you felt totally at peace. Yeah, some people refer you, you to bring this. that vulnerability home. There's a psychological theory. Um, I forget who put this forward, but it's called terror management theory. And basically, you know, anytime you talk about something that reminds a human of death, even if you talk about it symbolically, even if you're reminding the human on a non-conscious level, um, it, it makes humans more sensitive. It makes humans more vulnerable. It makes humans um, think and feel all kinds of things because you're reminding them of, of them, reminding them of their mortality, right? So I can't be on a plane without being reminded of my mortality. On an individual level, you mentioned people being more sensitive. Can this drive behavior? Um, like the behavior of an entire people? I'm just talking about individually. Does does the awareness of vulnerability drive behavior? Or the when 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 your illusion of control is so directly challenged mm-hmm. when oh, you yes. are made to feel it, it can make you behave in very strange ways. It can make you even more irrational. It can make has you, there been any scientific studies or psychological studies about people's reaction when we take away their sense 9/11? of control? Well, I was just saying to nine eleven in general or to mm-hmm. terrorism in general. I mean, I know we talk yes. about post traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Is that a coping mechanism? Or? I uh, know it's that's a that's a post traumatic stress disorder. I would say is a, a clinically significant, genuinely um, abnormal phenomenon where a person is having a very negative, very dysfunctional reaction. Um, having a stress reaction, being um, depressed, being anxious are normal. Uh, post-traumatic stress is not necessarily normal. That's why it doesn't occur. Was there an it increase? Uh, was there a noted increase in depression that you're aware of after 9/11, or say after Sandy Hook, after an event like that that's in the news all the time? Um, I'm not aware of any studies that show that. But again, it's it's kind of hard to know because you could have an uptick in symptoms that sort of fly under the clinically significant threshold. I understand where it means that. You know, you're not you people, help. yeah, you're not seeking help, but you still are feeling some way. Sure. Whereas before that, maybe you had fewer people feeling insecure or anxious. Or sure. What I can tell you is, um, there have been studies done. Uh, there's a professor of psychology at I think the University of Michigan who did something similar to what you're asking. She gave people um, some very stress-inducing, impossible tasks, right? Like she gave them these math problems that didn't really have a solution. Um, and or like an escape room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then afterwards, she asked them to look at a computer monitor with what appeared to be just static on the screen, right? And then she asked them questions about that static. Like, do you see anything in the static? And people, some of them reported, yes, I see a number, or I see a car, or I see a person, or I see a, right? They actually reported seeing things in the static, much like if you look up at the clouds, you can kind of make the clouds mm-hmm. into something. Sure, sure. People were seeing all kinds of things. Um, that is, one group of participants were, were admitting to seeing things. Um, the other group 
said, no, I don't see anything. It turns (laughs) out that the group who saw the most meaning in the static on the computer screen were the very group that she had made stressed stressed by giving them impossible tasks to complete. It, It appeared as though they were turning to emotion or spiritual explanations or whatever. And that was one interpretation when they were stressed. However, uh, those people matched as participants, right? Randomly matched as participants to, to be in the condition where they were not made to be stressed. They were given problems and, and told, yes, uh, correct. You did a good job. Um, they didn't see these things. So, so I- it's almost like if you, if someone takes away your sense of control, Right. There's a desire to start thinking more irrational. Interesting. I'm not saying I'm not necessarily suggesting that the belief in God is irrational, but I would say that yes, the the belief that you see things that are not there is somewhat irrational. Well, historically, and and this is certainly true, right? The belief in a in a higher being in a Mm -hmm. time like the the Black Death, for instance. Yeah gives human beings a measure of control because even though right or wrong. God is, is inflicting this punishment, he's inflicting the punishment because of bad behavior, yeah. you're in control of your behavior. So, but I mean, if I, you think about that, that, I, that, I, is, that does say something sure, right, about sure, us. It sure. says that at the end of the day, feeling like you're in control matters so much It does that the human brain has evolved to accept things that are not true, to accept illusions, to accept stories, to accept make-believe, potentially. So, so I mean, the, the brain the, is happy to make up stuff that could not possibly be true, in order to preserve control. your sense of control. Yes, I think that's history shows that time and time and time again. I think it's borne out, and it's borne out in particular in times of distress, in times of you know great social upheaval. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to get into you know I'm an amateur psychologist. No. Yes, I am. I mean, I figured. Yeah, of course, right? So look. Um, I, I want to get into decision making, and because mm-hmm. I, I sort of want to talk about the the national response that we've had to terrorist acts since nine eleven, and not just terrorist acts, but you know any any act. But yeah, since nine eleven, um, my understanding of the brain is mm-hmm. is this, and you can tell me how wrong I am, and definitely fill in the gaps. All right, mm-hmm. decision making is not controlled by the neocortex. Not purely. Not purely. No. And David Hume, the very um, but, and early just, philosopher, just, just said quickly, that. Give us a 30-second mm-hmm. synopsis on, on the brain, like neocortex and the limbic system. Yeah, what you're talking about is two of the most commonly cited parts or systems in the brain, um, the neocortex or cortex. Um, and, and that's our newest brain? That's the outer that's the most portion. Brain? That's the outermost portion of our brain. It's the one-eighth of an inch thick wrinkled uh, covering across the entire surface of our brain. When you talk about the neocortex, it's, it, it stands for new cortex, um, where cortex has to do with, you know, the, the wrinkly part. Um, the specific part of the neocortex that we believe is associated with logic and thinking rationally and thinking systematically, those kinds of traits we attribute to primates and more specifically humans. Yeah. Uh, is in the front part of the brain, right? So it'd be the surface of the frontal lobes, sometimes gotcha. called the uh, frontal cortex. 
And is that where speech comes from? Too? Um, that is where speech comes from. The back of the frontal cortex. I told cortex. you I was an amateur. Maybe I got this. Area. But now the limbic system is a name we give to a collection of structures, um, both on the surface in the cortex, but mostly underneath the cortex in the deeper regions of our brain, in the parts of the brain that we associate with our mammalian ancestors, yeah. with our reptilian ancestors. Um, that part of the brain is believed, those parts are believed to be uh, some of the more ancient parts, more ancient systems. And so and isn't when you think about limbic system. primary driver for decision-making say No, so I can't say primary, but I'm glad you brought this up. That we have these emotional centers, that we have these motivational centers, that we have these appetitive centers, like for thirst and hunger, right? That sounds very old, that sounds very non-conscious, should not be confused with they are smart or they're dumb or that they dominate per se. In humans, we have both systems. We have the lower structures, what Nobel Prize winning um, psychologist Danny Kahneman calls system one. And we have the, the newer parts of the brain, the higher, more outer surface cortices, cortex, including the frontal, that came later in evolutionary history that we see with some marine mammals, we see with um, primates, ourselves. Um, he called that system two. And he said that, you know, system one and two are both doing the job of trying to make decisions. It's just that under some circumstances, under some circumstances, we might lean towards system one more or lean towards system two. And he said now, so since system one is so old, it's normally going to crank up first and work the fastest. The problem is it gives us some wrong answers. System two is more accurate. It's more deliberate. It's more thoughtful. It's more reflective. But evolutionarily speaking, it came late. And it's not necessarily as valuable ancestrally because, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're trying to decide whether or not an animal is going to be friend or foe and you take too long, the consequence is <laughs> you're dead, right? Yeah. So Could the be. truth doesn't really matter what it was. You didn't make a quick enough decision. The opposite makes more sense. No matter if it's a politically correct decision, if I'm right or wrong, if an animal is, is about to attack me and I spontaneously take off running or spontaneously faint and, and play dead and I survive, then great. By the way, if that animal wasn't going to attack me, but yeah. I kill it first and just ask questions later. That's a win. It's a win even though I killed something that wasn't actually going to kill me because I live another day. You know, it's, it's dog eat dog. It's, it's, we're red in tooth and claw, man. I mean, our nature has always been to survive first. Sure. And so system one is that limbic system, the old system that most of our ancestors had, and that's all they had. Evolution um, works at a snail's pace. We haven't had a sophisticated system two or neocortex or frontal cortex for very long. So what I would say is this. Fear is coming from the limbic system. Anything can potentially trigger the limbic system. Have you paid any attention uh, to the political campaigns of the last, say, Absolutely. 20 years? Yes, and the Republicans... Well, are better are better at, fear, at taking advantage at of just this look, fact about how the brain works. 
and, and so that was my that was my mm-hmm. when, when I was talking about the limbic brain, my my primary motivation was that yeah, okay, it's it's the neocortex mm-hmm. and the limbic brain, but it seems like it's easier in some respects to speak directly to that emotional part and to get people to move and it's behave. only easy if you know how to do it. It's only easy if you but recognize But doesn't terrorism speak to the to the emotional look, part of our brain? Yes. And so do many and so do many way. of politicians' messages, particularly conservative messages. Let me let me just put it this way, okay? Yeah. Two thousand nine hundred and seventy seven people mm-hmm. is one thousand people less than die on America's That's highways. Right. Every year, and please, we've been playing That's the right. names mm-hmm. um, for our audience. If you don't know what those yeah. are, those, those we, are the we names could eventually we could eventually play all those names in a few hours, but we couldn't do it for all the names in one year that die on motorways in America. No, because and, and if the right. primary, and I believe it is, if the mm. primary goal of any government is to keep its people safe, sure, would the trillions upon trillions of dollars mm. that spent. we have spent and the thousands upon thousands of lives lost been better spent and the tens or mm-hmm. even hundreds of thousands of mm-hmm. civilian deaths in yes. Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes. Would that treasure time and money have been better spent developing a car that can't possibly crush you to death or, or will keep you 100% safe in a crash? Absolutely. In fact, you can, you can even say that if you do want to stop terrorism, which by the way has not taken nearly as many American lives as an automobile. Cancer. A gun. Cancer. Suicide. You would put more money into education, diplomacy, trying to be friends with people across the world. And yet we don't. And yet we don't. And our reaction to September 11th, I think, makes perfect sense from a psychological perspective. But from an old system, from a limbic, from a, from a from a limbic system, mm-hmm. but it is and it runs counter counter to what we know in our neo brains. And you would think when we know better, we do better. But that's not the way it works. No, but and, I mean and, you're and the politician po- and politically, but you're the political guy, right? It's about spending money. It's about priorities. I would argue you talk a lot about priorities. Well, I'll show you your priorities if you show me how you spend your money. I would argue politically, and this is just from an armchair political um, guy. That it's not about show me the money. It's it's about show me what works, right? Like I can move a lot of people by saying nine eleven. I can persuade a lot of people by saying shark. But I can't persuade or move a lot of people by saying diabetes, HIV. People I don't, aren't. Uh, people, I don't know people, about people, HIV. No, people didn't stop having sex because we talked about HIV. People didn't stop using drugs because we talked about HIV. Yeah, but I don't think, I think sex is a little more important, biologically speaking, than flying on an airplane. No, you're absolutely right, but. It's I not get, reasonable to expect people to do one thing and, you know, you can, you can expect people to stop flying on a plane for certainly a given amount of time. Maybe. Or to but, take their shoes off when but, they go but, through airport but, security. But or, let's not compare apples to oranges here. Let's compare apples to apples, right? Um, the people who are dying of HIV AIDS still to this day far outnumber and exceed the number of people dying on planes. Yeah. But the fear of flying, I'm going to argue, is at least as, if not more, um, pronounced for the average person than the fear of HIV. However, are there things that are taking more lives than, say, HIV? Yes. Yes. Car accidents, um, drug overdoses, 
So, um, if, so if, what I'm saying is nobody's afraid of a car accident. Like the average American's not afraid to get in the car and drive down the interstate. The average American's not afraid to drink a couple beers and get in the car or text and drive. Those are far more dangerous things than HIV. Cards on the table time. Mm-hmm. Do you text and drive? Never. Bull. No, I don't. Bull. Have you ever done something that could be considered texting and driving, like read an email? Oh, I've bring, done it. Or, don't get me wrong. No, that's I'm, I'm just saying, saying I'm that's not. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I've done it before. Yeah, yeah I'm not in the habit of doing it I've done it, either, it before, but, we've all but done I don't it do it. And now I'll say what helped me. What helped me was um, having more responsibility than I ever had. As soon as my kids were born, just I shut off all distractions or as many as I could. I limit the distractions. So the phone is one of the, the biggest distractions, right? I don't even talk on it when I'm in the phone, when I'm in the car with my kids, unless I absolutely have to. And then, even then I try to use Bluetooth, which by the way, I could talk about this forever, is not that much safer, if at all. That's what but, they say. But look, back back to this yeah, thing. Yeah, let's get back to that. If you were if you were advising a politician, mm-hmm. or, or not a politician, let's say a legislator, somebody mm-hmm. who was making public policy. Yes. Not running for office, but making public policy. Wow, who are they? Like Civitas and uh, <laughs> John Locke Foundation. <laughs> so I guess And they're nonpartisan. They're nonpartisan. They're they're really the, the, there to try to do make the best advising, make the best decision possible about you, the most people for the most people. You are advising a group that is trying to save lives in the United States oh, in any okay. way possible. Yes, and their focus this month is on preventing automobile accidents and highway death. Mm-hmm. Would you? And they have. We a, would have no conversations about how to well, how to avoid they, meteors. Let's say they have or a, tornadoes. Let's say they have a radical idea. And they come to you and they pitch this idea and they say, here's what we want to do. We want to show mm-hmm. every American, uh, you know, get it to a text, get it to an email, um, the results of a horrific automobile accident every day for two months. Would that do... And, and clearly make the connection that it was related to distracted that driving. There are things like that we could do. Like texting and driving. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the, the connection would be, look, there are things that we could do. We could invest money mm-hmm. to prevent these types of deaths. Yeah. Would that be a good political strategy? Would making people feel if fear mm-hmm. and emotion be a drive behavior? Not, y- yes, I believe it would. Um, it would make people fearful of driving and texting. However, I don't think you can underestimate the power of the human brain to engage in mental gymnastics that will... No, no, I'm not talking about the individuals. I'm just talking about the the politicians. I want the politicians to pay more money. Yeah, no, but I'm saying these these infomercials or these public service announcements, I'm saying that the average person, yeah, I think there might be a reduction in texting and driving, which, by the way, would, would be a good use of money because then you would you would reduce the number of people who were killed in the car accident, yes. I think you would see a decrease in the number of people who text and drive and, and how often they do it. But I don't think you would eliminate it. Like, I don't, I don't think you could create enough fear with these images of car accidents even every day. And here's why. People don't feel, okay? They don't feel it. When they are in a car and they grab their phone and look or text, they don't feel the fear. And if you don't feel it, the limbic system's not gonna, engaged, gonna react, right? Gotcha. Then it's not going to put, hey, it's this texting that's causing this fear. Did it? You got to give them the fear, and then they'll blame it on something. Did it engage the? Did was your limbic system engaged on nine eleven 
or was the the limbic 100%. system one hundred percent? It was engaged on nine eleven. Yes, and and one hundred percent, it's engaged every time I get on a phone. Okay, excuse me, get on a plane, and it's engaged every time I get in the ocean. And I think about a shark, and it's engaged. Are you afraid right? of the ocean? One hundred percent. Yeah, of course, because I think sharks. You know why? I know Have it's you not rational. Shark Week? No, it's not rational. But that's exactly why I'm afraid of it. I, I because re- I it's remember so reading a un, study. It's so un, you're so. It's so unpredictable. I remember reading a study that said that more people report shark attacks in the week after Shark Week. Of course they do. Is that true? They were bumped by rocks and other people's legs, and they were bitten by a jellyfish, and any number of things can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it makes you more cognizant, and it makes you more afraid. Um, I would just simply say, you can you can show one plane crash, right? Okay. And that will that will instill more fear in a group of people than Oof. if you showed a car crash every day. Some of my colleagues in psychology believe that if you showed car crashes and you talked about car crashes the way you talk about plane crashes, mm-hmm. that people would drive safer, people would start taking the bikes. I don't believe that. Again, okay. I believe it would affect a few people, a few more people. But I don't believe it would stop people from driving because I don't believe the act of driving tickles the limbic system the same way the act of flying does. Right? Okay. Flying is so fantastically different than anything your evolutionary ancestors have done. Yes, that's true. Driving, at least you're close to the ground, right? Going 70 miles an hour on the ground is not completely unlike getting on top of an animal and running with you 20 miles an hour like an elephant it's different but it's not that different i mean there are humans that can run 22 miles an hour however getting in a plane and flying above this rock we call earth in the sky at 500 600 miles an hour sitting inside a pressurized (laughs) container i mean is there anything more vulnerable no nothing that makes you more vulnerable Yet, by the way, simultaneously, there's nothing you can do hardly that's safer in terms of traveling. Yeah. It's, you uh, have a better chance of dying today if you walk, bike, or drive across Market Street in Wilmington than you do if you fly anywhere in the world. It's funny because I always tell myself that I can, when, as soon as I feel turbulence, the rational part of you, I'm right? like, okay. Just be rational. Just relax. Like, yeah, you're going to get there. You're yeah. obviously going to get there. This is the limbic part of your brain getting tickled. Yeah. <laughs> So look, can I can I speak to uh, two brains? Let me talk to. Uh, I'm it's gonna, hard. It's hard I'm, to speak. No, to no, no. Brains. I'm talking to you. I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you to answer with oh, Jason's limbic brain first. Then, I'm going to ask you two questions. Yeah. Well, let's do that after we take one more short break. Let's do it. Frederick Hu Jr. Patricia A. Chorus. Noka Kushitani. All right. So you're going to quiz my brain as if uh, I'm two different people. Yes. Well, before I do that, you know, with those names playing, I just had, did you know anybody who died in uh, any of the attacks on 9-11? Um, if I did, I'm not aware. Do you know anybody who died in uniform on the war on terror? Yes. Yeah. Multiple people. Yeah, 7,000 Americans uh, mm. lost their lives in Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11. Yes. Um, during the global war on terror. Mm. Um, 177,000 uniformed Afghans. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's to say nothing of all the casualties, anywhere the, the but, non-death related yeah, casualties. Yeah. Arms, legs. Sure. Traumatic brain injury. Absolutely. Uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
mm. which is, you know, can be debilitating as, as well, you know. It can take um, your life as well. You can kill yourself. You can certainly. overdose on drugs accidentally. Even, even today, our veterans are some of the most afflicted groups, uh, you know, uh, among the most afflicted groups in the United States Absolutely. with regards to the most afflicted homelessness, drug abuse, uh, And they're also overlooked use. and undervalued and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you had 300,000, anywhere between 300,000 and 600,000 uh, civilian Iraqi deaths. Um, this That's is right. to say nothing of the trillions of dollars uh, added to the national debt. So, limbic brain Jason. Mm-hmm. Two days, five days, ten months after 9-11, I ask you about the price of all of this and was it worth it? Did it make for good public policy? Did we have to do it? What does your limbic brain say? Absolutely. Why? Absolutely. Why? Because I feel better. I feel safer. I feel a sense of community. I feel national pride. My limbic brain made me love George W. Bush when he stood on top of that rubble that with that fireman and moment. said, I hear you, and the people who knocked down these buildings are about to hear all of us. Yeah, hell yeah. I absolutely can say 100% unequivocally that I'm all in and I'm willing to sign up right now and go fight and I'm willing to give all my money to a um, help supply our military with weapons fund. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to give my life because I'm a patriot and I feel it with every morsel of my body. That's what my limbic brain is telling me. We really By do. the way, no matter how educated, no matter how politically liberal, no matter how intelligent, no matter how um, historically adept, no matter how rich, how poor, no matter what sector of the workforce I live in, work in, my limbic brain is pretty much the same across the board. Wow. It's going to cheerlead. So you can't have like a liberal or conservative limbic brain? Hell no. It's your limbic brain. It's your limbic brain. It's, it feels. And by the way, it is by default conservative. Really? Oh, why? yeah. Why is that? Well, well, first of all, does that explain in your mind why conservative politicians have tended to uh, give more money since 9-11 to defense spending, to anti-terrorism measures? They've been more likely to be supportive of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes, and not only that... But how is that possible if both brains are feeling it the same and processing that, it the same? Now, that is a good question. I ask um, all sorts of... I'm an amateur is, psychologist, That one is baby. a wonderful question. I mean, I'm not sure anyone understands what is it about a heavy political-leaning person versus a heavy liberal-leaning person, right, that allows their system one, as Danny Kahneman uh, the Nobel Prize winning um, psychologist. Does, does system one take over in a liberal That's brain? The, the, we don't or? know. No, no. You mean system one take over in the in the conservative brain and system two take over in That's the liberal brain? That's what I mean, yes. No. We don't know. We don't know for sure. We but, just, but we system just know. system one reacts the same way regardless. System run one reacts quickly. It's it's um, It takes extreme shortcuts. It acts quickly. It is believed to be um, preserving of our life. It doesn't care about accuracy. It just cares about feeling. It's the moment. It's hot. It's it's instinctual. And it's done pretty well throughout evolutionary history. Jason, since 1945, Pew Research has asked, uh, Pew Research mm. has asked a question. Actually, I believe it's 1933. Mm-hmm. 
Pugh has asked the question, uh, do you, or yes or no, do you approve of the job that blank is doing yes. as president? I want you to guess which president has the highest rating ever on that question. George W. Bush after 9-11. Absolutely. And, and that was both liberals, conservatives, libertarians. Because we all felt the we same. We all. Do you remember that And feeling? it was our limbic system. That united us. You remember that feeling of unity? Do you remember that Friday, that day? Day after, the, yeah. The, 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 I the don't, candlelight. It wasn't mm-hmm. the day after. It was two, three days. The candlelight sure. vigil. But I remember the day after. The sure. moment those buildings were hit, I felt this overwhelming sense of solidarity with all Americans. It was the first time I remember the first time I ever um, went through a day without judging someone for something. I just saw everyone as Americans. I remember getting on a plane months after 9-11 when, when the ban was lifted and we felt like we could fly again. I was flying out of Wilmington, North Carolina, and there was a guy who was trying to get on the plane with a um, uh, with a pocket knife. It was kind of on his belt. Mm-hmm. And I remember being a little bit nervous, right, until I started talking to him. And he was from the same part of the world I'm from. Mm-hmm. South Carolina. Yeah. And I thought, man, he's one of us. And honestly, if he had said he was from anywhere in the United States, I probably would have been okay with it. Today, after all of that has subsided, 20-something years later, if I see someone trying to get on the plane with a knife, probably not going to feel that same sense of solidarity. Sure. My rational mind has now been afforded the chance to kick back in. So, Jason, there's a um, there's an author, Lindsay Pollock. And she wrote a book about how to succeed in the multi-generational workspace. It's called Remix. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how different generations end up experiencing events and it shapes generational attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, events like, let's say, uh, the Great Recession. Yeah, Great Depression uh, before that. Great Depression, uh, 9-11, uh, the Politics of the 80s. Not Vietnam. Vietnam. Moon cer- landing. Certainly. That, Cuban Missile Crisis. Sure. That people who experience these things. Are forever changed. Are changed, but in the same direction, in the same way. Yeah. And I'm wondering uh, as if a, that, As a people, as a culture. Uh, and I'm wondering if that can sort of be applied um, to, to 9-11. Not, because uh-huh. you said it, it, it goes away, the effect of getting that limbic system activated. and Well, I mean, at least it goes away or it subsides in some people's brains. And maybe but for those that it subsides in, maybe we call those liberals and the ones that it doesn't subside quite as much in, we call them conservatives. I don't know. We don't know what, what came first, the chicken or the egg. Were you conservative first and that's why you continue to feel the way you felt after 9-11? Or did it right? change you? Sure. Or did sure. it make you conservative? Like, I don't know if my liberalism come first or if it's the outgrowth of or the culmination question. of the events that have happened in my life. That's a good question. But I, I can just I, tell you this. I'm not, I don't react to the same things that conservatives react to. Like for instance, when it comes to another fear is one, we've been talking about that, but that's not the only, the that's way. not the only emotion you can have. Like you can have disgust. That's a, that's a very powerful emotion. Disgust like emotion can be a driver of behavior of thoughts of, and, and, it turns out that if I were to say the word homosexual, um, it does not trigger the part of a liberal's brain that represents disgust as easily, and I know I'll probably get in trouble for this, as it does 
a conservative's brain. How about Interesting. that? Um, Interesting. There's a, a ton of keywords. There's a ton of, of phenomena, social concepts that trigger the disgust part of conservative brains differently than that of liberals. That's interesting. So inequality, That's interesting. inequality triggers liberals. That's interesting. That's interesting. I can tell you this because I'm a pretty liberal guy. I remember, you know, strongly supporting Al Gore, disliking George W. Bush, following mm-hmm. the results in Florida very closely. Yeah. I will tell you that um, from my limbic perspective, man, seeing the president with a bullhorn, which was sort of his element anyway, he's yeah. a folksy, have a beer with him type yeah. of Paul. Um, but seeing him in that, man, the country needed that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what I felt exactly, but I know you just, I just had a feeling after that, man, Everything's gonna we're going to be okay. Yeah. We're going to be okay. So now you think about that, like, could a liberal president have done it that way? Maybe not without some um, support from people that understand the limbic brain. George Bush, I'm not saying people told him what to say. I believe that that really came from his heart. I do too. But that also tells me that he really is a conservative. That tells me that he really does, on some level, understand how the the reptilian or the limbic brain works. He he understands it. All right, so let's... uh Let's ask well, you didn't you, ask me the other question, that's by what the way. Yeah. I'm, but I'm going to ask it to you yeah, in the same way. Okay? okay. okay. I want to go over the numbers. Yeah. So 2,977 Americans lost on 9-11. Yes. And in response to that terrorist act. Ten years of war, 20 years of war. The two longest wars in the United, in U.S. history, the mm-hmm. two longest wars. One 20, and two. 20 years, right? 20 years. Okay. How much money? What's up? How much money did we spend? Um, Trillion? Trillions of dollars. Okay. Trillions. We've had 7,000 American service members' lives lost. How, how many amputees and traumatic brain injuries? Too many to count. Can't count. Um, we've had 177,000 Afghan soldiers lose their lives. 8,000 contractors. I didn't mention that before. How many motherless and fatherless children? Oh, as many as the numbers. Orphans. Oh, okay. Good. And then we've had um, 300 to 600,000 Iraqi deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, all in response to the deaths of our citizens mm-hmm. on 9-11. Yeah. Um, neocortex, Jason. Yeah, frontal, front part of the brain. Relatively new. Should we have done it? No. Was it worth all a- the blood and Absolutely blood? not. It wasn't worth the money. It wasn't worth the time. It wasn't worth the effort. No. In fact, even if you want to believe it was worth it, it's just an illusion at best because we could have saved... So many more lives if we simply had put our money towards manufacturing medicines that could keep um, insulin levels up in diabetics. If we had put money into um, more clean needle programs and more um, outpatient treatment facilities for the drug addicted. If we had put money towards um, universal health care. Universal child care. Um, I can go on. Making college free for every man, woman, and child. Um, a cool. basic universal income with those trillions. We could have saved so many more lives with any of those things than we have ever saved. Well, let's fighting talk. 
terrorism. Let's, let's wrap here. I got the Rahm Emanuel quote, right? And uh-huh. it's not Rahm Emanuel's quote. He's, it's attributed to him because, you know, he, he, he said, said it last. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, there is an old adage in politics and that you never want to let a good crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's a cynical way of looking at crises. Maybe. Um, and I think it depends on what we're talking about, right? But it's functional so, way of looking at politics. Sure. Because if you're looking at the Great Depression and you're seeing the poverty all around mm-hmm. you and you're implementing programs as a government that you should have been doing anyway, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be letting a crisis go to waste. Right. When we want to talk about gun violence immediately mm-hmm. after a mass shooting, yeah. if you want to curb gun violence, if you want to have meaningful laws and programs that reduce gun violence in the United States— mm-hmm. Couldn't ask for a better time. There's never a better there's, time. There's no Which other is time. ironic because that's, a, that's when they tell you that's that, the time. Oh, we they can't say make an emotional yeah. decision. Mm-hmm. But it almost yeah. seems in, in politics and certainly on a mass scale, mm-hmm. you can't help but make other than an emotional decision. I, I would absolutely concur, yeah. So, so, you know, but then you look at something like 9-11, right? Okay, we're not going to let this, this moment pass, this crisis go to waste. And maybe right. there were things that we should have done differently. Mm-hmm. But if you're implementing policies that shouldn't be there in the first place as a reaction or an overreaction. Right. Well, then it is important to take a pause. And I guess in terms of politics, we rely on the wisdom of our leaders to tell us and to show us the difference. Maybe and that's we our do first need. Mistake. No, it's not. It's I think so. Really? Especially if we're genuinely relying on our leaders to do that. Well, leaders should be crowdsourcing. We're, we're still sovereign. We pick them. No, but I'm saying leaders should still be crowdsourcing. They should still have very smart people in there, among their staff and in there. Um, well, I don't think we're relying on the president to operate independent. Of I his don't staff. know. Donald Trump said relatively recently that he alone can fix and solve everything. Right? He doesn't need anyone. He's the smartest man he knows. Right. And you would rank that presidency where? Because I can I tell you where historians put it, will put, put it, it near Andrew Jackson. Near Andrew Jackson, I'm yeah. not. I'm not. I'm not going below of, him. I'm not a fan of Andrew Jackson, but I'll go below him. I can't. I can. All things in context, all things at a time. I would go pretty far below. Hey, I guess I could say, what's Andrew Johnson done to me? Right? Are you talking about Johnson or Jackson? Jackson. Gonna, sorry, I didn't mean to say Johnson that time. Andrew well, Jackson. Johnson's probably below Jackson. Yeah. You got to brush up on your Andrews, my friend. No, they're both terrible. Well, you know what was terrible, um, and you know what I enjoyed discussing today. Um, believe it or not, was was our discussion on terrorism. Um, I do. If any of our listeners know somebody um, who's been affected by terrorism, or who lost a loved one in nine eleven, you have our most sincere sympathies. And you know, if you are interested in giving to a veterans administration to help people who have been affected afterwards. If you're interested in drug rehabilitation, follow, absolutely. Uh, you know, we all urge you to uh, to find a way to to give back because there's plenty of people who, even though they lived through 9/11 or weren't affected by it directly, mm-hmm. you know, the the uh, Washington Post just did a study or they published a study by the UN in 2023. It's earlier this year. Some 4.5 million people can be. Um, connected indirectly some 4.5 million deaths can be correct uh indirectly linked to the war on terror so i gave you the numbers directly it's over a million people but a lot more than uh than that you know in raw numbers well if you don't know what to do um and you don't have the means with which to do it i would just leave you with this ladies and gentlemen 
it's better to do nothing than to do the wrong thing. The liberal, uh, the limbic brain, the emotional brain is easy to trigger. If you are feeling extreme emotion, then the liberal, excuse me, the limbic brain is probably triggered. And that doesn't always bode well when it comes to making the best decisions. You know, this is the reason you're discouraged from going to the grocery store hungry. And exactly for that reason, I would discourage you from making a knee-jerk reaction about a person or a group of people just because of, you know, what they evoke viscerally and emotionally. Yeah, I always tell my students when we talk about terrorism and the government's response to it, um, if you ever watch a horror movie Mm -hmm. and you see really intelligent people making really stupid decisions and you make fun of them, that's how people react when they're scared. Absolutely. They're not doing they don't anything make stupid. Decisions. They're just moving. Yeah. I think that's... And, and, and in a way, maybe, and I hope not, but maybe that's our collective reaction to the horror of September 11th. We just moved. Nelson, thanks for doing this with me today. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.